You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Please open your Bibles with me in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Preaching is a privilege. I do not take it lightly. In fact, I tremble at this responsibility. And to be able to stand behind this pulpit tonight is a great honor and privilege. And I hope and pray that the Word of God will be a blessing to you once again. I know that your pastor and your preachers in this church have been preaching the Word of God to you uh, diligently. And tonight I just want to share with you my heart as a missionary, as your missionary, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, we read this verse, and we'll also look at other verses in this chapter of the book of Philippians. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, this letter of Paul to the Philippians has been called not only the tenderest letter that he ever wrote, but also the most delightful because it brims over with expressions of praise and, and, and confidence and rejoicing despite of the fact that this is one of Paul's prison epistles written from Rome during one of his imprisonments. And you can find the background of this letter in the book of Acts chapter 16, which tells of Paul's vision from the Lord when he was taken to the edge of the agency and there he saw a vision of a man who cried out for him to go over to Macedonia and help them. And the Lord led him there. And in the province of Macedonia, it's on the other side of the sea. In that province is the city of Philippi, and the Lord led them there. And you will read about those exciting and danger-filled days when Paul and Silas and their companions were in, the, in Philippi together. They first met a, whim, a group of women by the riverside, and to these women, they spoke the gospel. And one of those women was Lydia, seller of purple. And she got saved, and those women got saved. And Lydia even invited the apostle into her home, and her name has been mentioned throughout the centuries because of her kindness and hospitality to the apostle Paul. And in fact, it is in her home that the church in Philippi began. Now after this, the apostle Paul continued to preach throughout the city, which stirred up a great deal of interest and, and later different reactions from the people. And finally, it uh, aroused the resentment of the rulers which led to Paul and Silas's arrest and them being thrown into jail. It was on that occasion inside that jail when Paul and Silas were locked in stocks down into the inner prison with their arms and their head held immobile that an earthquake shook the prison, toppled the walls, releasing all the prisoners and setting them free. And the Philippian jailer came running in and fell down before the apostle. And thinking that his life is over because he thought that the prisoners have escaped, he cried out in those words that have been the subject of many gospel sermons. He cried out, Sirs, what must I do to get saved? The answer of the apostle was, was brief and to the point. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thine house. And he did get saved. 
and his household, and they were joined to the church in Philippi. And now, later on, the Apostle Paul was later released, and uh, together with Silas, continued with their mission and went to other places, other cities like Thessalonica and, and Berea and Athens and Corinth and other places in Greece. But now, as he writes to the Philippians, he is in Rome, a prisoner once again, and, and this time at the hands of Nero, the emperor of Rome. Now, although he was allowed to stay in his own rented house, he was under house arrest, he was chained day and night to a Roman soldier. And uh, anytime he could face Nero, and Nero, the emperor of Rome, otherwise known as Augustus Caesar, has allowed him to have his own house, but he was not free. He's not free to go where he wants to go. Now, Paul knew that his life could easily be cut off when he appeared before Nero. Yet, you will find that this letter glows over with radiance, with, with joy and confidence and strength. It is full of affections for the Philippian believers, unlike any other that he ever wrote to. And not to mention the overflowing presence of God in, in, in this letter of his to the Philippians. It is a great encouragement to every downcast or discouraged heart to read this little letter of Paul to the Philippians. Now, let me just jump right into the main subject of this letter. The main subject of this letter is no other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his availability for coping with life as we know it. In the, in the first chapter, Apostle Paul wasted no time to present the truth that Christ is our life. Christ is our life. It says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Christ is our life. Now think about that for a moment. My friend, your job is not your life. Your education is not your life. Your religion is not your life. Your career is not your life. Your farm, if you have one, is not your life. Money is not your life. Material gain is not your life. Sports is not your life. Now, there's nothing bad about these things that I mentioned. But they're not what life is all about according to our text. Our text says, for to me, to live is Christ. Paul, as a true believer in Christ, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God, declares without hesitation that Christ is the very center and meaning of his life. Before his relationship with Christ, his life was dedicated to persecuting and destroying those who followed Christ. He lived unto himself. He worked and labored to gain power for himself. He cared about no one but himself. But then he met the master on that road to Damascus by faith from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ became his life. He trusted him and became his life. See, Christ, our life, is the most powerful life we can ever have. Now, let me just give you one thought about the immensity of the power of Christ. If you will look back in Matthew chapter 26, you will find the Lord Jesus Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with a few of his disciples. 
And as he was doing that, suddenly there came the mob, the temple police and, and, the, and, and, the, and the Roman guards, and, and they, uh, with, 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 with the people that wanted him to be crucified, they went in together with Judas. And Judas approached the Lord Jesus Christ, kissed him, and that was the signal, and gra they grabbed him to arrest him. And just then, one of the apostles took a hold of one of the guards' uh, sword and started swinging and, and cut off one of the ears of the guards, to which the Lord Jesus Christ said this in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53. He says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. Now in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles chapter 27, verse 1 to 15, you will find King David there assembled 12 courses or 12 legions of fighting men to protect him at all times. Each of these legions would report for a month, uh, each month, when they're not at war, but during times of war, presumably all of them would report for duty. So at any given time during a time of war, 12 legions of fighting men would be guarding King David. Now, in the Roman army, there's about 6,000 men in one, uh, in one legion. In the, in the army of Israel, there's 24,000 in one region, legion. So 24,000 times 12, that's about 280,000 men guarding David at all times. By contrast, Jesus had at his command more than 12 legions of angels. Now, again, in the Old Testament, in, in the book of 2 Kings, uh, chapter 19, you will find the angel of the Lord in one night, just in one night, killed 185,000 men. One angel, 185,000 men. Now, simple multiplication shows us that 288,000 such angels can handle Get this, 53 billion soldiers. And Jesus had more access than that. Jesus did not need Peter's little sword that night. Had he chosen to do so, Jesus could have summoned more than 288,000 magnificent, mighty, dazzling, gloriously, and overwhelmingly powerful angels to the Garden of Gethsemane to obliterate the Roman soldiers and the temple police who had come to arrest him. In fact, the combined strength in 12 legions of angels could have wiped out the entire human race many times. But Jesus did not call on that supernatural help that was available to him Instead, he held it back. He held back that power. He controlled it. And why? Because he knew it was time for him to voluntarily lay down his life for the sin of the human race. And that's our Lord, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how powerful he is. See, imagine those angels. Imagine those angels. And I believe... The, those angels were surrounding that, that garden that night. Nobody can see them, but I believe they're there. Now imagine those angels who have been ministering to Christ, their creator, the master, their master from eternity past, being kept back by Christ himself. 
See, their, their hearts must be boiling with, with wrath immeasurable, their eyes flaming with anger, ready to strike at any moment. Just give the word, O oh Lord, must be the constant plea. But the master hears them not. He's like a, a lamb, a silent lamb, taken to the slaughter. And he must do this for you and me, because you see, he loves us. And he wants to be our life. He has said before that he's the only way, the truth, and the life. Oh, praise the Lord, I was given the privilege to receive Christ and became my life. I grew up in a very religious family. And my cousins, two of my cousins are priests. And one of their sisters is a nun. And I grew up in church. My father was a commentator, lector in the Catholic church. I was an altar boy. I was a member of the choir. I was an esquire for the Knights of Columbus. I was a member of the Student Catholic Action. You name it, I was in it. I know all the prayers. I know all the rituals, the ceremonies, the traditions. I know them all. I was taught with that from childhood. But there's nothing I, don't, there's nothing I know about my soul. And in the 1970s, there's a lot of fighting between the government and the rebels. And in our town, in our very town, it, it, it's where it started. And we can see people dead just about every day. And it terrified me. Death terrified me. Seeing all those dead bodies almost every day. And I went up to our parish priest when I was a teenager, and I asked him a question. I asked him, about, if I die, what would happen to me? I did not even refer to my soul because I did not know anything about my soul. And he answered me something like this. He said, well, we try to do our best. We try to obey the Ten Commandments. We try to obey the rituals, the ceremonies, the traditions. We try to obey what the church commands us. We try to do more good than bad. And if we have done all of that, he said, then maybe, perhaps, you know, probably when we die, we go to heaven. You know, I walked away from that conversation a very disappointed Catholic because I thought that the priest was somebody who knew God more than I did, who was closer to God than I was. But then he went, he gave me an answer that he himself was not even sure of. I mean, if he's not sure, where does that lead me? And I said, I've had enough. It's useless. It's all for nothing. It's just religion. And when I was in college, I was working with, with the school paper. We had a new editor-in-chief. He came in. He was my new boss. I, I, I got my education by working for the school paper, and I got my, 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 uh, my, my scholarship from there, and I was introduced to him. The first day that we worked together, he tried to witness to me. He turned out to be Christian. And day to day, every day, he would attempt to witness to me. I didn't like it. I would ignore him. I would insult him. I would say anything. I would do anything just not to listen to him. I even played possum. But it didn't work. He was just very, very aggressive and very insistent. And he's been inviting me to church every time. And one day I told him, let me make you a deal. I'll make you a deal. Would you stop what you're doing to me if I go with you to your church just once? Now, that is a big decision for me. Because even though I'm not attending the Catholic Church, we were taught from childhood that if you go to another church of another denomination, you're actually committing sin. And so for me to do that, I'm just, I'm going out on the limb for this. 
And and he said, with a smile on his face, okay, fair enough. January 5, 1986, it was the very first time I stepped into a Baptist church. It was different. Somebody met me at the door, smiled at me, shook up my head, and then ushered me inside. See, that church, there were no carpets. There were no padded pews. No air conditioning. There was a tin roof, and the people were sweating. It was hot but they were singing at the top of their voices. I never heard anything like that, never saw anything like that before, not even in the Catholic Church. And I was sitting beside my friend, and then the, the, and the preacher came up behind the pulpit and began to preach a very simple message about the crucifixion. He described the crucifixion so vividly and graphically. He says, if I was taken back in time, and I was seeing this with my own eyes, He says, if I can even hear the pounding of the nails. And it was so real. And then he made this statement. The preacher said he did this because he loves you. Now for me, that's incredible. Why? Because we were taught from childhood that if we want to get to God, we would go to Mary first to get to Jesus And my mother always tells me, if you don't behave, Jesus Christ is going to punish you. I grew up with the thought that Jesus Christ was out to get me, he was angry with me, and that the only way I can get to God was through Mary. So there's a lot of Mary worship in our country. But that morning, I heard about a different Christ. A Christ, the Christ who gave his life for me, who suffered all the pain on the cross of Calvary, who gave his life for me, for me. I don't even deserve it. There's nothing in me that is good. There's no good enough that I can do to save my soul. And that morning I told myself I need Jesus. And I actually prayed this, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Please, please save me. And that morning I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I trusted him in my heart. And from that day on, Christ became my life no longer am i that lives but he reigns in my life he is my life i don't know of any other life aside from jesus christ see we need to learn that vital lesson from jesus and from the apostle paul or apostle peter that night jesus did not need peter's undersized insignificant sword to deal with his situation that night What good would a single sword have been against all the troops assembled in the garden that night anyway? Peter's actions were a perfect example of how the flesh tries in vain to solve its own problems but cannot. On the other hand, Jesus has all the power to conquer anyone and anything. And as you face your own challenges in life, my friend, always keep in mind that Jesus is the life who holds all the power to deal with any problem that you come across. And before you jump in and make things worse by taking matters into your own hands, remember that story in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before you attempted to grab the sword and start swinging, take a few moments to remind yourself that Jesus can handle the problem without your intervention. And before you do anything else, pray, oh pray, and ask the Lord what you're supposed to do through his word. 
then after you receive your answer and follow his instruction through his word, just watch his supernatural power swing into action to solve the dilemma you are facing. Tonight, if you are without Christ, you are facing the most terrible problem in your soul. You know, it doesn't matter if you are a Baptist. It doesn't matter if you've been a church member for a long time. It doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter if you look at yourself as a good person. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that is what exactly Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says. For the wages of sin... Uh, uh, Romans chapter 23 says... My mind just went blank. Help me out. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm sorry. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ. No one can save your soul but Jesus Christ. And you need him now, not later. You need him now if you don't have him yet. Humble yourself before God and simply trust Jesus Christ by faith as your only Savior, and Jesus will be your life, a life that is only the most, not only the most powerful life, but also the victorious life. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, sometimes we put the emphasis on the last part of this sentence, to die is gain. But that is not what Apostle Paul is just saying, he's saying that, you know, to live this life is Christ. Meaning that this life dedicated to Christ and Christ in it is a powerful life that can affect a person or other persons that surround that life to become an influence, not just an influence, but point them to Christ and have them have Jesus Christ as their life. See, the, the Apostle Paul is saying this in his letter. He says, I don't know really which to choose, to live this life with Christ and then to die and to go to heaven. It's a win-win situation. But he says, whatever God wants me to do, I will do it. Now, this certainly indicates that the apostle Paul was not fed up with life at all. Yes, he was in prison. He was incarcerated. He was suffering. But that is not the issue at hand. It is his heart, his heart solely dedicated and given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he was not fed up with life, nor was he discouraged. And the entire context of the passage confirms this. Look at me in verse 12. He says in verse 12, But I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things that happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, he says, don't be disturbed about me. You hear that I'm in prison, yes, but let me tell you something wonderful. My circumstances have served to advance the gospel, and my imprisonment had made it possible for the gospel to spread in Rome as it never has before. Look at verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, all the palace, the very seat of power in Rome and in all other places. And he says, I am not discouraged. I'm rejoicing, and furthermore, other Christians in Rome are stirred up and are preaching around the city. 
Look at verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, walks in confidence by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul was on a mission ordered by God. Nothing will deter him from accomplishing the mission. Moment by moment, he was being given the privilege to see right through his circumstances and how God is working to lead him to fulfill the mission. My brothers and sisters, my friends, you and I are also on a mission. We are part of the great mission of God. If you ever ask yourself, why am I here? Why, why has God taken me to serve Him in this church? Well, God has a mission for you. And you have to find out from the Word of God what that mission is. And the foremost mission that we have is to spread the Word, to witness with the Word, to witness to souls that are in need of Christ. See, in, in, in Apostles' time, during this time, a unique evangelistic enterprise was occurring, the likes of which has perhaps never been seen before or since. And it tells them what it is. And here it is. God has designed a plan for reaching the Roman Empire that Paul never dreamed of. If you read between the lines, you can see what was happening here. Nero, the emperor of Rome, has commanded that every four hours, one of the finest young men in the whole Roman Empire, from the elite that constituted his personal bodyguards, would be brought in one by one and chained to the Apostle Paul. Now, if you know the Apostle Paul, he will not talk about the weather, or politics, or economics. He will talk about Jesus. So one by one, one by one, they were coming to Christ. And there was being formed a picked band of young men, the very keenest, the most intelligent, the finest and strongest young men of the entire empire. One by one, they were being introduced to Christ. Now, if you don't believe that, go with me to the last chapter of Philippians, chapter 4, and look at verse 22. This is the Apostle Paul addressing the Philippian believers, and he was telling this, to the Philippian believers in behalf of the, of the believers in Rome. He says, salute all the saints, salute you, verse 22, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Now, isn't that a unique plan for evangelizing the Roman Empire? But that is the kind of God Paul served, and that is why he could say, for to me to live is Christ. If you believe in the providence of God, God is preparing, He is doing some work in the background, preparing people around us, preparing communities around us for the Word of God. And all we have to do is make the step. Remember when Jonah went to Nineveh? He went there armed with just eight words as his message. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. It's not even a positive message. It was a warning. There was, no, there was not even a promise. And he went around the city shouting, Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you know what happened? The Bible says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
from the smallest child to the highest official, the king, everyone in Nineveh believed. And what are the chances of that happening without God? Zero. But with God working in the background, by His providence, already prepared the hearts of the people. All we have to do is make the step. We are on a mission. Never forget that. We don't attend church to play church. We don't attend activities in church just to be, you know, in. We are on a mission, and time is not on our side. Every day, people are dying without Christ. Every three seconds, a soul slips into eternity, and without Christ, they go straight to hell. We are on a mission. And our life in Christ must do its work. We know that Christ died for us, but that in order that he might live in us. And the experience of the outworking of Christ's life in us is what turns life on and makes it vital, makes it God-glorifying. And you cannot read the first chapter of this letter without seeing how thoroughly the Apostle Paul discovered this truth. Even as he contemplated appearing before Nero and faced possible execution, here's what he says in verse 19 of Philippians chapter 1. For I know, and that's a statement of confidence, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And what has made a difference? This man, the Apostle Paul, has found a secret that God intended for humanity, and that is God indwelling men of faith. Because it takes the life of Christ to be the kind of person God intended for Him to be. And no life is complete that does not have God in it. And Paul has found his out to the glory of his day-to-day -day existence, and he never forgot it. He lived life to the fullest in the knowledge that Christ is his life. Now remember that I said at the beginning of this message that Christ, our life, is the most powerful life we can ever have. When we live in that power, we have victory to overcome sin, discouragement, apathy, you know, selfishness, hatred, unbelief, lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life and many other hindrances to our faith in Christ. Jesus, our powerful life, clears the way for us to follow His great commission that we may go into all the world and preach the gospel until He comes. I have a question for you. Did chains around His hands keep the Apostle Paul from declaring the gospel and even influence other believers to spread the gospel throughout the empire? No. And why is that? Because the gospel is not bound. It is never bound because over it is the life of Christ. Because Christ is our life. His work must be our life. His word must be our life. His will must be our life. We must be about Christ's business. We must be increasingly engaged in the wider work through the word. 
We must never let up until the Lord calls us home. We may not be as strong physically like we used to be, but we can be spiritually strong, down on our knees, in earnest prayer, even for brothers and sisters around the world who are laboring on our behalf. Let us go on towards seeing a God-anointed, wider work through the Word, proving that Christ is our life and that those who will hear and believe might also have that life that we have. On July the 17th, and I'm done, on July the 17th, me and my family stood before a judge in a courtroom in Columbus, Ohio. We held our hands, and we held the small flag of the United States of America on one hand, and we were officially sworn in as American citizens. We waited 10 years through many, many documents, many requirements, paying of fees and all that, and we also had our examinations and interviews that we had to pass. We were made to uh, review a hundred questions, and they were going to ask us ten questions. And if we are able to answer the first six questions, then we're done, and we're, we're, we're okay, we, we pass. And we did pass. See, one of those things that we were learning or reviewing for the exam was learning the star-spangled banner. When I first read it, I did not understand it. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? Oh, so proudly we hail at the twilight's last glimmer. I did not understand that. But when I read the story behind the song, that profoundly moved me. For men, women, and even children laying their lives that we might have freedom. See, I stood there with 60 other people representing 27 countries being sworn in as American citizens. It's one of the greatest feelings in the world. It was so special to become a U.S. citizen. You should try it sometime. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You know, you should consider attending one of those ceremonies. Really. Because it will make you appreciate more what this country stands for and why you are here. And I could not even understand why there are even people born in this country who could not even stand up and place their hands on their chest and look at the flag and sing it with all their heart. It's one of the most blessed countries in all the world. Now I said that to say this. Brothers and sisters, we do not have any excuse not to pursue the mission that God has given us the opportunity to take part. We have all the means we have all the resources. We have all that we had, the tools, a great heritage. Don't waste it, young people. Don't waste it. Don't let the world just turn and then let it pass and let those souls pass this life without even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I would love to take you to the Philippines and see for yourself 
what's happening there, and then you will say, oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. But more importantly, we have a mission. We have a mission to fulfill. Never forget that. We're not done yet with the mission. Until God calls us home, we are to continue with it. The Apostle Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I'm going to make my life worthy, worth it in service of the Lord. And may you tonight remember what God has called you to do. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.